Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus, study the word, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can come together on a regular basis to study your word. We're thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is your word that enables us to accurately understand the trends of history and the direction of history. And as we study your word, especially as we've gone through this study in Hebrews, we gain a greater understanding of our destiny as church-age believers and how our current uh, training fits into that plan and how all of this fits within the plan of history. Now, fathers, we study, continue to study about the new covenant. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they will be clear to us and that we may have a greater appreciation for all of the intricacies of your plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In Hebrews 8 we have come to this very important passage starting in verse 6 and 7 and 8 that connects the high priestly ministry of Christ, the fact that he is high priest. Back in Hebrews 7, we covered the fact that there is a because there is a change in priesthood, there is a change in law. So these two things go together. Because you have a new law, it's related to a new covenant. Then in the first five verses of Hebrews 8, there's the, mention, there, there's the focus on Jesus as the high priest uh, uh, related to his ministry today at the uh, right hand of the Father, and that he has a more excellent ministry, and as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So this better covenant is what is introduced then in verse 8, which is a direct quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, it's easy when we get into the kind of study that we've had the last couple of months, almost 10 lessons now dealing with the new covenant, to sort of lose the, the forest for the trees, and I try not to do that. But as I get into some of these other passages, it's really interesting to see some of the connections that are going on, especially in light of where we're about to go in the next chapter, chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Hebrews, which pulls together a lot of information about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Levitical offerings, the uh, different facets, features, function of the, of the uh, tabernacle, and the Levitical worship, and how all of this connects and so we're going to be spend a lot of time going back and forth between Hebrews 
and these other passages. And even as I've gotten into this passage where we stopped last time, uh, Ezekiel 36, and the New Covenant passage there, as I looked at the broader context of Ezekiel 36, it becomes evident that there's terminology that is interwoven in that passage that dominates the Ezekiel 20 to 40 section of Scripture, which is the description in the Mosaic Law of the tabernacle, all of the uh, articles in the tabernacle, the, the priesthood and the role of the priest, the high dedication, consecration of the high priest, and the, uh, the whole uh, Aaronic priesthood and Levitical priesthood. And then when you move from Leviticus, Numbers doesn't say that much. There's a little bit, I mean, excuse me, just today, Leviticus, uh, you get into Leviticus, and right in the middle of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 10, there is this episode of the sons of, of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, bringing strange fire into the tabernacle, and God instantly executes them. And, and then you have uh, that chapter talks, uses certain terminology that is then used when all this terminology is only used in Ezekiel 36 and uh, Ezekiel 44, where you have all these words together. We'll see them in a minute. When you're dealing with common, profane, uh, I mean, holy and profane and, uh, and um, uh, clean and unclean. And those are the only three sec- passages in Scripture that put all of those together. And that it's very important to understand this because Ezekiel 36 is obviously looking forward to the kingdom whereas the passage in Leviticus 10 is dealing with the role of the priesthood at that time. And that functions just gets right into a whole interesting section where you go from Leviticus up through chapter 10, deals with the consecration of the priesthood and the initial consecration of the temple and the first day where there's the offer of sin offerings and burnt offerings, trespass offerings, and then there's the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And then you immediately go into this, these chapters from 11 through 17 that go through all these different laws. And people get involved in that. You go read that and you say, why do we get into all these intricacies of all these different Levitical rules and regulations on if you do this, you're unclean. If you do that, you're unclean. If you touch this, you're unclean. If you touch that, you're unclean. And if you do this, you have to do this kind of sacrifice. And if you do this, you have to do that kind of sacrifice. And and there's so much detail there, and people just get, get lost in it. And then you come to chapter 18, and it says, then after the death of Nadab and Abihu, which locates the time of Leviticus 18, which is the law of the Day of Atonement, to come right after the events in Leviticus chapter 10. And the way most of us are taught about the Day of Atonement is to think about the Day of Atonement in terms of something soteriological primarily. Now that takes us into another thread of study that I did a number of years ago uh, that dealing with the meaning of the word that's normally translated atonement, and that's the Hebrew word kafar, which traditionally has been understood to mean cover, but there's been a lot of debate among uh, language scholars in the last 20 years or so that the meaning of atonement really has more to do with cleansing. 
Now that has that's backed up in one sense, not just through the etymology, but it's also backed up by the fact that when you look at the Septuagint, in numerous, not all by any means, but in numerous passages, the the rabbis who translated the Pentateuch into into Greek translated kafar with the Greek word uh, verb katharizo, which is cleansing. So the issue here is, are we talking about positional or are we talking about experiential? Are we talking about phase one salvation being pictured in these sacrifices or are we talking about ongoing fellowship in these sacrifices? And that makes a huge difference. And people get very confused over this this whole set of terms, holy, profane, and clean and unclean, and just what that means. And people have a tendency to make the mistake when you just talk about that word group of assigning soteriological value to those words. So if you're holy, you're saved. If you're profane, you're not. Or if you're clean, you're saved. If you're unclean, you're not. That kind of, and that doesn't, salvation has nothing to do with this. Then you add another layer on top of this. I want to tell you the, I'm kind of letting you know the kind of connections that all these passages have is you get into these new covenant passages and if you approach this from the position of covenant theology, you approach this from a position of high reform theology, then there there is this idea that the new covenant is not only established at the cross, where the cross is the basis for the new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant of my blood. But that in Acts 2, and we've gone through this before, in Acts 2, when Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about in Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit upon you, and your young men will see dreams, and your old men will see visions, and your daughters will prophesy. And uh, that, if that is interpreted to mean that the, whole, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts two is the fulfillment, literal fulfillment of the prophecy in, in, in Joel two, then it's clear that the language in Joel two is new covenant terminology. That would mean that the new covenant is established and enacted in Acts 2. Now you go back and you look at some of these passages where God says, I'm going to put in you a clean heart, a new heart, and you will do my will. Oh, wait a minute. Putting a new heart, putting a new spirit in me, that sounds like regeneration. Because in regeneration, we get a new spirit. We're born again. That sounds like I'm getting a new spirit. It's regeneration. Regeneration means now I'm going to do God's will. And then just the next easy step to this lordship concept of perseverance that the person who's truly born again is going to do God's will and that somehow he's not going to be the dirty, rotten sinner, corrupt sinner that he was before he was saved and capable of all the sins beforehand. So you see that... that the, what I'm trying to show you is theology makes a difference, not because you use theology to understand the text, but if you misunderstand the text and you misinterpret some of these some of these terms, then it takes you in the wrong direction theologically, and you misunderstand you misunderstand what salvation is and what it does. And you add that to the mix that Reformed theology is, historically is heavily dependent on the theology of Augustine in the 5th century, 
And Augustine misinterpreted Matthew 24, which, as you all should know, Matthew 24 is the uh, Sermon on, on uh, I mean, the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is saying, is answering the question, what are the signs of my coming? And Jesus gives a, a discourse on the tribulation and what happens in the tribulation period. And in the middle of this, he says, those who see these things happening, referring to the abomination of desolation, need to flee into the wilderness and escape. They need to go down to the mountains. And we studied that in relation to regeneration last time. We talked, this is when numerous Jews, uh, Romans chapter 11, after the two witnesses are killed, which I believe occurs right before the middle of the tribulation, after the two witnesses are killed, there's this great earthquake in Jerusalem. And as a result of that, the text says that 7,000 are killed in Jerusalem, and the rest, which means everybody else in Jerusalem, gives glory to the God of heaven, which indicates that's when you get this mass of tribulation Jews getting saved. And then right after that, there's the abomination of desolation, and they see that, and that's why they flee into the wilderness, because now they're listening to Jesus in Matthew 24, and they get they understand what they're supposed to do and they and they leave well when augustine re- and and then after they leave there is the further statement from jesus in matthew 24 which says those who persevere to the end will be saved when augustine read that or augustine when he read that he read the word saved and he took it as spiritual justification salvation and not physical deliverance What Jesus is saying is those who persevere in obedience, in fleeing to the wilderness, and persevere to the end of the tribulation period, they will be physically delivered by the, by, by Christ when he returns to deliver Israel at the second coming. But Augustine misinterpreted that to mean that those who persevere in their salvation and in obedience to God will be saved justification. And so that enters into the stream of doctrine and is the background for the whole, what we call, lordship salvation. And at the core of lordship salvation, it's not just the idea that you have to make Jesus Lord of your life in order to be saved. The real core in lordship salvation is that a person who is truly justified is is incapable of committing certain sins or certain failures in life or even for the rest of their life, even apostatizing for the rest of their life. Uh, And if they do, then that's a sign that they weren't actually saved to begin with. And it's a confusion of regeneration that in, in being born again, somehow the sin nature is minimized, diminished, or its power is reduced because now you're given this new nature. And it really flows out of a whole, of several threads of theology. Now, all of that comes to bear in some of these passages that we're dealing with. That's why a while back in this series, I took some, t- uh, a good bit of time talking about Acts 2 and how Acts 2 quotes old, uh, Joel 2. And we talked about how Arnold, um, Arnold talks about the uh, four different ways in which rabbis would quote the Old Testament. And there was the literal, literal future prophecy. Jesus, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus, uh, that was a prophecy, literal prophecy. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Then you have another situation that refers to a, a literal historical event 
when the Jews came out of Egypt, and then that is applied typologically to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 when Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus come out of Egypt. And so that's applied typologically. It's a literal historical event applied typologically to Jesus. And then the third use was the use of a of a literal uh, Old Testament event when the mothers of Ramah, the Jewish mothers of Ramah, are weeping as they see their sons and daughters taken off to Babylonian captivity. And there's only a point, one point of similarity. And in Matthew chapter 2, the mothers in Bethlehem are weeping over uh, the, their, their children and the, and the death of the infants. And that's the point of similarity is the sorrow that the mothers had. And so it's an application. And then the third was a, su- a summary. Well, it's that third one that is, that is parallel to Acts 2. When the writers of Scripture are saying, this fulfills that, we want to take it as always like that first example of Micah 5.2, that in the, the, or Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin will conceive, literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. But there are these other ways in which that fulfillment terminology uh, is used. And if Acts 2 is not a literal fulfillment, then we're not in the new covenant. The a covenant was only established at the cross, but the new covenant, which is with the house of Israel and the house of, Ju- uh, house of Judah, does not become uh, in, initiated. It, it, it does not uh, become established until the second coming, which is what all of these Old Testament passages are showing. So in terms of just the introduction, kind of a review here, this is why I've been going through all of these Old Testament passages chronologically, we started with the passage in Hosea, then we went to Isaiah, they were contemporaries, then we went from Isaiah to the key passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and now we're in these two chapters of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel 36 has a key passage and Ezekiel 37 has a key passage. And what these are showing, and what we have to understand, is that every single one of these passages is talking about this phenomenon phenomenal thing that happens to every Jew in Israel, and they're all already saved soteriologically in the tribulation, but something in addition happens to them when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation and establishes the new covenant. And it has to do with their, their spiritual life and the nature of what happens in the millennial kingdom and it is very different from what's going on in the church age. And when you don't make these dispensational distinctives, you can really get messed up in your understanding of what's going on in these passages. And you can go to one extreme of lordship salvation and go to the other extreme of saying, well, we're supposed to see, have dreams and visions and prophesying and speaking in tongues and all this because we have this unique role of the Holy Spirit today because we're living in the New Covenant, and that's, that's a charismatic, uh, charismatic position. And so this ought to just give us uh, great comfort that understanding the distinction between Israel and the church and God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, we see these, these distinctions play out. And ultimately where we're going to end up with in, when we get back into Hebrews 8 is understanding that our relationship to the new covenant isn't because we are a covenant partner. There is no new covenant with the church, which is a question that 
uh, something that a lot of you have heard before. That was a position taken by by Walver, Chafer, Schofield, but there's no mention of a new covenant with the church anywhere. It's always new covenant with uh, Israel, new covenant with, with Judah, but Jesus, as a high priest and mediator, is the mediator of this better covenant, which connects his high priestly ministry today with the new covenant with Israel and Judah. That's what Hebrews 8 does. It doesn't connect it to it doesn't say in verse verse six or that it's uh, or in verse eight that it's a new covenant with the church. His high priestly ministry, which is church related, isn't connected to a new covenant with the church, but it's connected to a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now this it, this gets in a lot of this gets into technical studies, putting a lot of different verses together and, and bringing these threads together. And sometimes people get a little lost, and, and it's, it's not always easy. And you get into these studies, especially in Leviticus, and there's not, um, it's real easy to get lost in the high weeds. And so what I'm trying to do is, is constantly kind of raise our head up a little bit so we don't get too caught up lost in all the details and, and feel overwhelmed and we and you can see where I'm going with this because when we come out the end of this when we get into Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 and we're talking about the uh, all these analogies with the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood this was understood by these Jewish believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to who were former Levitical priests and they understood all of this. And they're connecting all these dots because they are so schooled. They've got Leviticus memorized. They've got Exodus memorized. They understand all this. But we don't. We don't have that background. And so that's one of the reasons Hebrews is a difficult book for a lot of people to understand is because we don't have as thorough an understanding of, the, of Leviticus and of the ministry of the tabernacle and all the doctrine that's in 8, 9, and 10 grows out of our understanding of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well. So that gives us our, our understanding. Now, what I'm saying is what we have in this chart, and that is that the New Covenant is an outgrowth of the blessing paragraph of the Abrahamic Covenant. The land promise is expanded in the real estate or Palestinian covenant, the seed promise to Abraham is expanded in the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant is the expansion of the third part of the of the Jewish covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, let me take a parenthetical aside here and ride a hobby horse for a minute. One of the questions that I've I've raised years ago others raise is that to be pro-Israel does not mean you have to affirm and validate every decision that the Israeli government makes. They've made a lot of bad decisions. It's one of the uh, most socialist countries in in the world. Uh, there have been a number of, uh, and, and right now you, I just wonder if Ehud Omar even has brain cells that connect to each other because of some of the decisions that he's making and, and, and in terms of the long-term uh, protection of a nation. I mean, every nation has a right to defend itself. 
And so this question constantly comes up whenever you talk about, uh, especially when it relates to politics, because time and time again, you, you see somebody from uh, George Bush Sr., and uh, who was his Secretary of State? Baker. Baker. And Jim Baker, and they're in bed with the Saudis, and they were pushing for a Palestinian state and Palestinian solution. And Clinton did that at uh, Y River and got, uh, you know, forced uh, uh, Ehud um, Barak to come up, you know, the, the greatest concession that the Israelis had ever made. And um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Arafat. I'm doing real good tonight. And Arafat just Arafat just turned it down because he wanted the destruction of Israel. Now, these men are inherent. They are. This is an anti-Semitic policy that is being followed because it's anti-Zionist. Now, let me explain this. Anti-Zionism means that you don't believe the Jews have an inherent right to that piece of real estate. Zionism means that you do believe that the Jews have a God-given right to that piece of real estate. That's the difference. Zionism and anti-Zionism doesn't mean that you put the good housekeeping seal of approval on every decision that the uh, Knesset makes. It just means that you believe that, there, that, the, that Jews have a divine right to that piece of real estate. The second thing, and we've studied this in the Israel series, is that you recognize that in 1900, there was no Syria, there was no Lebanon, there was no Transjordan, there was no Iraq, there was no Saudi Arabia. In 1900, you had the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman Empire was breaking up at the end of World War I, you had all of these different uh, political machinations and empirical machinations done by both the French and the British and you had the coming into existence of the League of Nations. And the League of Nations gave France a mandate to govern Syria and Lebanon. And the League of Nations gave a mandate to Britain to govern the area that we now call Transjordan or the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and, and Israel. And these were not, this wasn't Israel and Jordan at that time. And it wasn't Syria and um, and Lebanon, they came into existence during the period between World War One and World War Two. But at the end of World War One, when you have the Balfour Declaration, in the Balfour Declaration, there's an official recognition recognition by Israel by by the British government that the Jews had a right to a national homeland. The Arabs had a right to their land, to, to a homeland. The is, it, Israelis had a right to their homeland. And initially, it was going to be that the entire uh, piece of real estate that today includes both Israel and Jordan, that all of that was to be given to the Jews. And then, of course, what happens is you see the impact of 19th century liberalism on British society began to intrude itself. Because up through the end of World War I, your upper-level leadership in British government, which included Balfour and David Lloyd George and other key leaders in in Britain, these were their, the elder statesmen. They're in their 60s. They're in their 70s. When they were raised, their mamas believed in the Bible, read them the Bible, read them Old Testament stories. They believed 
that the Jews were God's people, that they still had a right to the land. But by the 1850s, when, when, when Europe shifts to 19th and is influenced by 19th century Protestant liberalism, the next generation that comes up after them, which would include uh, T.E. Lawrence, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, and others who begin to dominate British politics about the end of World War I and through the 20s and 30s, they didn't grow up with the same biblical background that the elder statesmen did. And so they become pro-Arab. And so you have an anti-Zionist and anti-Israel mentality dominating the British Foreign Service in the 20s and in the 30s. And they're backing the Arabs, and so there's an erosion of the land that's going to be given to Israel, and instead of giving them all that territory, they reduce it to just the part that's on the uh, west of the of the Jordan, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, and they were going to give the land to the east, the Transjordan, to the kingdom of Transjordan. And if you read uh, the, the literature at that time, the 30s and 40s, it's referred to as the kingdom of Transjordan. Now it's just called the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So there's this erosion of support for the Jews. And then there's a further petition that occurs in the 40s, by, by the, uh, 1946, 47, by the UN, which even takes away more land from between the Jordan and the Mediterranean from the Jews and gives part of that to the Arabs. Now, see, what we have to understand, the Arabs want a Palestinian state. If you look at it historically, the Palestinian state is the kingdom of Jordan. And the Jews were to get the other land. And when the Jews established their state and declared independence in May of 1948, they did not tell the Arabs that they had to leave. In fact, even today, the Arabs that live in the state of Israel have more freedom, they have more abilities, and they have more freedom of religion than the Arabs that live in the uh, Palestinian-controlled territories and and even those who are living in, in Jordan. And the point that I'm making here is that the, the, the nation of Israel is formed just a, as the nation of Transjordan is formed, just as Lebanon is formed, just as Syria was formed out of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And it was Western powers who basically determined what those nations were going to be and what those boundaries were going to be. And it was all established according to international law. And so Israel isn't coming in and stealing land from the Palestinians or running them out. In fact, the reason most of them left and became um, uh, became refugees is because the when the, the the five Arab powers that were going to invade Israel when they declared independence, when they were going to do that, they basically said that the Palestinians that were living there needed to seek protection and get out of the way so that they would not get in the way of the invading armies. So, back to our question, what makes you a Zionist? It's not, not that you believe that Israel is always right, but that the Jews have a right to the land, and they have just as much a right to that piece of real estate as the Jordanians do to Jordan, the Syrians do to Syria, and the Lebanese do to, do to Lebanon, number one. Number two, if you don't believe that they have a right to the land, then you're an anti-Zionist. Now, the logical result of anti-Zionism 
is that you think that the Jews ought to basically self-destruct and commit national suicide because they don't they need to give all the land back to the Arabs and let the Arabs come in and uh, create another holocaust on the Jews. So that whether you are willing to admit that or not, that makes you anti-Semitic in the current literature today is that anti-Zionism is just a cloak for anti-Semitism because after World War II and the Nazis, nobody wants to be anti-Semitic, but we just think that the Jews need to give up the land, especially the land that was gained in 1967. And in the 1967 war, Israel was again attacked by their Arab neighbors. They did not instigate this. They didn't initiate it, but they were attacked by their Arab neighbors and they, once again, they defeated their Arab neighbors, and in the process of defeating their Arab neighbors, they won territory. The territory that they won included most of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Gaza Strip, which they recently vacated, and the Golan Heights. Now, the Golan Heights are a high ridge line that's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're standing in Tiberias on the west side and you look across the Sea of Galilee, you're looking about two miles across the Sea of Galilee, maybe a mile and a half, and you see that ridge line over there. And up to 1967, the Arabs had their artillery lined up down that ridge line, and every day they were lobbing artillery rounds into Tiberias and Capernaum and all those towns and villages on the west side of the Sea of Galilee every single day. How do you like to live like that? So the Jews realized that this was strategically uh, indefensible. They couldn't stay like that. So when the Syrians invaded in 67 and they were defeated by Israel, Israel captured the Golan Heights. It will be national suicide to give up the Golan Heights. Does Israel have the right to gain territory and military conquest taken from its neighbors when the, the neighbors are the ones that initiated war? Now, you can answer that two ways. If you answer it no then that means that you, 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 to be logically consistent, you need to uh, give Texas back to the Mexicans. Now, we know they're trying to take it back, but uh, you need to give Texas back to Mexico, give California and Arizona and New Mexico back to the Mexicans. You need to give uh, all this land back, and all, all us Western European Caucasians need to leave. That's the logical result of that position. And that's stupid. That is just irrational. Any nation has the right to gain and acquire territory in warfare when they are attacked by their enemy. And especially when that territory is of strategic importance, and by giving it up, it would virtually be committing a national suicide because another principle is that every nation has a right to defend itself, just like every person has a right to defend, to defend themselves. Now, incidentally, that right to self-defense is being questioned by your uh, wonderful congressman in Washington now. They don't believe that that's a right. You don't have a right to defend yourself, and that's part of the, what's going on with this Supreme Court decision re related to uh, uh, handgun ownership and, uh, and the, the law in the gun ban in Washington, D.C., but that's another story. So the, the point that I'm making is that when you look at political leaders that we have who are running for office, and they take positions, and this is Republicans as well as Democrats, and they take positions where they want Israel to return to the 1967 borders. And incidentally, the Air Force general that is one of the top advisors to uh, Barack Obama has stated that numerous times in print. 
and he believes that and has been writing on this since the mid-70s, that Israel needs to return to the 67 borders. When you have people who believe that, and that is their political agenda, then that is not only anti-Zionism, that is anti-Semitism, because what you're basically saying is that Israel doesn't have a right to defend themselves as a nation, and Israel needs to put themselves in a, in a position of nat- national uh, vulnerability uh, to, its, to its enemies. So this idea of support for Israel... Does it mean, and, and that goes back to the Genesis 12:3. those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who uh, support Israel's policies of national defense and national existence. Not support everything that they do, but support their right to self-existence in the land that God gave them. That it, that, that's what Zionism is. It's not supporting everything. It doesn't mean that we have to believe that everything that they, they decide is right. So that's, that is a key issue. So Genesis 12.3 is still in effect, and that is, was expanded in the New Covenant because in the third paragraph, I will bless those who bless you, that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that those who bless Israel, and accept that they will be blessed as through the ultimate blessing of the seed, who is Jesus Christ. And those who curse Israel, that is, those who treat Israel lightly, God says, I will curse you harshly. There's two different Hebrew words there for curse. The first word has to do with uh, almost as light as disrespect. Those who dish you, Israel, I will squash. That's what God is saying. Those who treat you lightly, those who have a slight disrespect for you, I will judge harshly. And so God is protecting them, whether they're apostate or not. And as we get into the passage and uh, in Ezekiel 37 or 36, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. And the key passage is in verse uh, 20. 26, uh, 25, 26, 27. That's our key passage for the New Covenant. But in this, in this chapter, earlier in the first part of the chapter, look back at verse uh, 3. This is the beginning of this prophecy. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations. Now, who, caught, who is the ultimate cause of Israel's divine discipline? God. Okay, but he uses these other kingdoms. He used the Babylonians. He used the Assyrians. He used the Edomites, all of these people. He said, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you were taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people, therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God, verse 4, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations. This is in relation to... The Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of the Gentile nations. I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. Who gave, And where's Edom today? That's down in kind of southern Judah and over into uh, Jordan. 
against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as possession with whole heart joy and spiteful in order to plunder its own country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and to the mountains. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken of my jealousy and my fear because you have borne the shame of the nations. Thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations around you shall bear their own shame. God's going to judge them. Now God, God is judging them. Why? Because of their attitude towards Israel. Even though God used that attitude to discipline Israel, God is still going to judge him, which means that in what condition was Israel in at this time in 600 B.C.? Are they apostate or are they spiritual? They're apostate. See, the point is God is going to maintain the Abrahamic covenant and protect Israel and bless those who bless them even when Israel is in apostasy and curse those who curse them even when Israel is in apostasy. And so Israel is in apostasy today, but God is still true to the Abrahamic covenant. It's still in effect. So God's not going to change his mind and start uh, turning his back and ignoring the fact that nations in Western Europe are becoming anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic by their policies. Now, they're going to cloak that and put that in a veneer of... uh, of justification and say, well, we want to be fair to the, all of these poor uh, refugees. And pe- because people are historically ignorant and they don't understand what went on in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in relationship to the Arab nations and Israel, they, they think, oh, well, these, the, all these poor Arabs were just uh, kicked out of their houses by the Jews. And that's the Palestinian propaganda. And so you have presidential candidates who go to churches where they print Hamas literature in the bulletin. You know, we get a president like that, we're just on the road to divine judgment because the policies that are going to flow from a mentality from that is just terrible. And, you know, the others aren't exactly a whole lot better. And, And the same thing is true for even the current administration. I mean, they they constantly have bought into this lie that the Palestinians have a right to their own state. And this is just uh, uh, another form of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So I hope that answers uh, some of those questions, and it ties into what we see going on, that eventually God will restore Israel to the land as a regenerate people. But remember, we looked at Isaiah 11.11, which says, I will return you a second time. And that second time is in, is in uh, salvation as, a, as they're, they're saved. But the first time is, I believe, what's going, on, uh, what's going on today because it's the only other time in history that God has been returning them with a, uh, from all the corners of the earth. Now, let's look at a passage in Ezekiel 36:25. God says, after he goes through all this prophecy... He then comes down and he talks about how he is, um, if we look at verse, uh, at the beginning of this section, really begins in 16. Son of man, take up a, uh, give the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it in their own ways and deeds. Circle that word defiled. They defiled it in their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness. Circle that word. Uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. That's right out of the Mosaic law, that when a woman is in her monthly cycle, she is ceremonially unclean. That's the point of the analogy. Is that sin? Does that mean that 
that during that time a woman is in carnality? No, but she's ceremonially impure. Now, that's it's critical to understand that distinction because obviously what we're talking about here when we talk about these words like impure and unclean, we can't be talking about sin because that's not sin any more than touching a dead body is sin, but it renders you ceremonially unclean. So there's a distinction between being ritually or ceremonially unclean and personal sin. They're not the same thing, but ritual uncleanness is designed at a physical level to teach lessons about spiritual uh, sin and about uh, personal sin and carnality. So you see this terminology, and from 17 down through uh, 20, verse, uh, let me see, 17 talks about clean and unclean. Then in verse 18, you have the word defiled, and then God judges them. And then in verse 20 down through 22, the contrast is between holy and profane. So we have clean, unclean terminology, and then we have a shift to holy and profane terminology. And then we're going to come back to, in verse 22, therefore that says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned, you have treated as common among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify, same basic word group, Kadash, to make holy, set apart. I will make my great name holy, which has been profaned. Verse 23, still holy and profane. And then there's the promise. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Now, when does that take place? When I will take you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That takes place at the end of the tribulation period when you have a regenerate Jews brought back to the land to reestablish or to establish the kingdom. So it is at that time when God takes them from among the nations, gathers them out of their countries, then, verse 25, circle the word then, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. So the order of events is that they're personally saved. That's why they're brought back to the land. They're personally saved. Then they're brought back to the land at the end of the tribulation. And we saw that last time that they're saved. Revelation 11, Revelation 12, they flee into the wilderness because of the testimony of Jesus and the testimony of God. So they get personally saved in the tribulation period At the end of the tribulation period, God brings them back, regathers them to the land, and then we have the events of uh, verse 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, does cleansing here have to do with salvation cleansing, what we would call positional cleansing? No. Because, as I've already demonstrated, they're already justified, they're already regenerate under the terms of the tribulation period, under that dispensation. They're already individually saved. So this is an additional cleansing. It's like when we confess our sins individually, there is a post-salvation cleansing. But this isn't a individual post-salvation cleansing. This is a... This is a corporate or national cleansing. 
Now, I want you to hold your place here in Ezekiel. I want you to turn over a few pages to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And see, Daniel understands the dynamics of what's going on. We looked at this last time in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We also looked at it Tuesday night. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the promise that when you're out of the land and you turn to me and you do shuva and you turn back to me, then I will restore you from the lands where I sent you. Well, Daniel understands that, understands the promise in Jeremiah that they're going to be out of the land for a period of 70 years, and he can count up on his fingers and toes how many years they've been out of the land, and he goes, it's time to go back. And so we read here in Daniel chapter uh, 9, verse 2, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, What's his appeal? What's his rationale? We're seeing the same thing in Solomon's prayer on in 1 Kings 8. Daniel is representing the whole nation, and he's confessing the national sin, uh, failure to uh, uh, apply the law, failure to follow the sabbatical laws and, and idolatry, and he is making a national confession as a representative for the whole nation. And he says, I'm making confession... And said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant mercy with those, and mercy there is hesed, uh, faithful, loyal love to a covenant, mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by the departing from your precepts and your judgments. So, now back to Ezekiel 36. The point I'm making is that just as Daniel has a prayer of confession for the nation, And the result of that is that at the end of the 70-year period, God restores them partially to the land, those who only in Babylon come back. Just as you have Daniel making a national confession, so what we're talking about in Ezekiel 36 is a national cleansing dealing with the two great sins of idolatry and rejection of the Messiah. And this is when they are ceremonially cleansed because this word translating cleansing is a word that is always used of ritual cleansing in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Now, pause, another aside, put together, bring another string into this thing. Is that in the Old Testament, you have this, this terminology of clean and unclean. And this is very physical. It has to, there's very physical things that render you clean and unclean. Most of the things that render you clean and unclean have some relationship to the curse of Genesis chapter 3. So that when you touch a dead body, where does death come from? Well, death comes, physical death is a result of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. So you touch a dead body, you are, it's a physical act, you're physically, ritually unclean, and there has to be a uh, a sacrifice to, so that you become ritually clean and can uh, then participate uh, in, the, in the tabernacle and temple ritual and come and worship God. And so it has to do with this, this idea of ritual cleanness. And what's happening in the tabernacle is God is not only spiritually present, but he is physically present. 
See, the, the, every individual believer is a temple of the indwelling of the Shekinah of Jesus Christ, the spiritual. But in the Old Testament, you had the physical presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so there has to be this, there's this ritual cleansing. Well, when you get into the millennial kingdom and Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom, he's going to establish the millennial temple and his personal physical dwelling is going to be upon the earth in Jerusalem. And there will be those who will be worshiping him again in a physical temple. And so once again, we go back to the need for ritual physical cleansing in relationship to worshiping God. And a point I made years ago in a series of articles I wrote for for Chafer Journal is that this shows that in every dispensation there is a necessity for some kind of post-salvation cleansing from sin. The key idea in 1 John 1, 9 isn't confess your sin. The key idea is if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the key word. And you go from Exodus all the way through uh, Revelation, and you look at Ezekiel 38, 39, 40, and uh, 40 and following the deal with the temple sacrifices, they have to do with post-salvation cleansing in relationship to ongoing fellowship. God always puts an emphasis on some kind of post-salvation cleansing. So John, 1 John 1, 9 is no different. The church age is no different. So when Ezekiel 36, 25 comes along, we read, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. It's national cleansing, national forgiveness for Israel. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, in addition to this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Let's just stop there. We'll put a new spirit within you. That's a lowercase s. In the original Hebrew, they don't have uppercase and lowercase. When you have spirit lowercase in, in, in the English text, it makes it look like it's something other than the Holy Spirit. And that is why you just look at the English text. It says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Ah, that's regeneration. Doesn't it sound like regeneration? I'll put a new spirit in you. You were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive, Right? So the question we have to ask is, is new spirit a reference to the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? The lowercase spirit shows that the translator has made an interpretation, but the Hebrew could easily refer to either. In verse 27, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to you. That's a result now. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the land, return to the land, establishment in the land as a regenerate nation is linked to the new covenant. So you can't have the new covenant in effect today because they're not in the land as a regenerate people. And earlier we saw it's also connected to the fulfillment of the Davidic uh, promise. Now, let's go to this slide. Verses 25 and 26, we're, we're going to get a new There's a new heart and a new spirit that the Israelites are given. That should be punctuated as I've punctuated it here, not with a semicolon after the U but with a period after the U. Semicolon is the same thing. It's the end of your main thought, and you're just moving to a next one, but I want to make it a stronger break. And notice I capitalized S for Holy Spirit. Why? Well, in the next part of verse 26, in 26b, 
we read, I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. Third, 26b gives us more details on the phrase, I will give you a new heart. It's typical in Jewish writing to give a summary sentence or a summary paragraph, and in some cases even a summary chapter, and then come back in the next section and give the specifics. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, you get the whole general overview of this, the seven-day creation week. And then we come back in Genesis 2 and we get the specifics on what happens on the sixth day when God creates man. So you have this general overview and then specifics. Well, that's what you have here. Moreover, I will give you, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. First of all, let's talk about how I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's no longer going to be a heart that's deceitful and wicked above all things. See, there's going to be something different for the Jews there. It looks like there is an effect on their sin nature in the millennial kingdom. But if you're trying to apply that to today as part of the new covenant, you see where you get into error? Well, our sin nature is not. we got a heart of flesh now. We don't have a heart of stone, so we're always going to be obedient to the Lord. Well, the second thing that is said, that is expanded on, is the second phrase, I will put a new spirit within you. This is clarified in verse 37, I will put my spirit within you. And there it's clear it is God's Holy Spirit. So if it's God's Holy Spirit in verse 37, then it's got to be that first mention of spirit has to be the Holy Spirit. This isn't talking about regeneration. This is They're already regenerate in terms of being saved. They had to be regenerate to enter into the kingdom. That's what we covered last time. We went into John 3 when Jesus said to Nicodemus, don't you know that a man must be born again before he can enter the kingdom? He had to be regenerate before he entered the kingdom. But there's going to be something additional that's going to happen, something that happens that's related to uh, this additional pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to go into the next point that I wanted to do, but just... Keep your place there and turn over to Joel. And we'll just wrap up with Joel 2. Joel 2.28 and following are the verses that Peter refers to in Acts 2. And in Joel 2, 1 down through 27, we have a description of God's judgment, which is focusing on the earlier part of the chapter is focusing on the tribulation. And then it's talking about how God is going to restore the people to the land, starting in verse 18. Then we come to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. After what? After this judgment that is described in Joel. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons and your daughters is not talking about the sons and daughters of all believers, it's talking to Israel, and it's talking specifically to the sons and daughters of Israel. This is not going to be true of everyone in the tribulation period, only Jews. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the pouring out of the spirit is a, 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 a an expanded and enhanced 
ministry of the Holy Spirit on the Jews in the millennial kingdom beyond what we experience in the church age. It goes far beyond that, and we can't confuse the two. And you have people who try to come in and confuse the two because they think that somehow the new covenant started in some way in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. But it's only a similarity. So where this is taking us is to an understanding of the difference between ritual cleansing, which verse 25 provides ritual cleansing for Israel. I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And verses 26 and 27 deals with the inner spiritual cleansing. You have both take place. There's an outer ritual cleansing and an internal uh, transformation of the inner man. And um, when we get into this next time, we'll come back and look at these key words for cleansing, which is always uh, contrasted with uncleanness, which is the Hebrew word tameh. It's not a word for sin. It's never translated sin, never used for sin. So being unclean and being clean are not concepts related to sin and not sin, although some of the sins can make you unclean. That's not the concept. It is a picture of, of, of what, what's going on. And then, you see, when we'll have to go back to Leviticus 10. In Leviticus 10.10, 10, God is correcting Moses and says that the part of the role of the priest is to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, one category, and between the unclean and the clean, another category. Now, it looks in Leviticus 10.10 10, like those are all, all the same. But when you look at Ezekiel 22, you have holy and profane, the clean and the unclean. They're separated. They're clearly two separate categories, same as in uh, Ezekiel 44:23. So these are passages. And then in Ezekiel 37, you have clean and unclean being defiled earlier in the chapter. Then it shifts to profane and uh, holy and profane, and then it comes back to clean and unclean. So you've got to tie all this stuff together. Otherwise, you don't know what the word says. And if you don't know what the word says, you can't apply it if you don't interpret it correctly. And that's what gets people into trouble. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to go through this, to be challenged by just our greater understanding of your word and how all of this interconnects. And ultimately, we see that this is going to drive home to us as believers in the church age the crucial and vital role that, that we have to grow and mature today because we are going to come into the kingdom on Christ's side to rule as priests and kings in the kingdom, and it's related to our training today as believer priests. So all this uh, challenges us to take our spiritual life so much more seriously. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.